Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, If It Causes You to Stumble. It's based upon the lectionary readings for September 30th, 2018. Millstones, stumbling blocks, maimed bodies, fire. This week's gospel reading offers us some of the harshest and most graphic language in the New Testament. Worse, the disturbing language comes straight from Jesus' own mouth. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, he says. If you cause a little one who trusts in God to stumble, you're better off having a heavy stone wrapped around your neck and drowning in the ocean, he says. If you aren't willing to cut off your offending eyes, hands, or feet, you'll be thrown into hell, a place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched, he says. I don't know about you, but I don't love this section of scripture. It's one of those uncomfortable bits of the Bible that my progressive Christian self is tempted to gloss over. Not that I don't want to take sin seriously, I do. But hell? Self-mutilation? Death by drowning? Whatever happened to what a friend we have in Jesus? Jesus gentle, meek, and mild? What happened to unfailing forgiveness and mercy? Or to the everlasting arms of cuddliness? Maybe some context will help. By this point in St. Mark's Gospel, Jesus is speaking openly and frequently about his impending death. And it's not just talk, he's also making his way south towards Jerusalem, away from safety and towards the cross. In other words, he knows he's running out of time. He's grimly aware that he has mere days left to prepare his still clueless disciples for what's coming. So he ramps things up. We can feel in this lection, in its exaggerated and violent language, Jesus' growing sense of urgency his frustration at how easily his disciples get distracted, his impatience at how often they get bogged down in minutiae. Pay attention to what's important, he seems to be shouting through the grisly images of hacked-off limbs and unquenchable fire. Faith is hard. So much is at stake. What you say and do, what you focus on, what you prioritize as my disciples, these things matter. Your choices have life-and-death consequences. So please don't be stumbling blocks. Please don't make faith harder for yourselves and for others than it already is. What sets Jesus off in this particular instance is his disciples' complaint that someone else, an outsider, is casting out demons in Jesus' name. We tried to stop him, they tell Jesus proudly, as if their grown-up version of schoolyard tattling will earn them brownie points, because he was not following us. Notice that they say, us, not, we tried to stop him because he's not following you, Lord, but... We try to stop him because his practice, his path, his way of doing faith doesn't look like ours. Jesus' response? Leave him alone, quit pestering him, get a clue. Whoever is not against us is for us. The longer I'm a Christian, the more awed and overwhelmed I am by the radical nature of Jesus' openness, inclusivity, and hospitality. Every time I think I've made my circle of inclusion wide enough, Jesus says, nope, make it wider. Your circle is still too small and stingy. Every time I think I've drawn an appropriate line in the sand, between us and them, saint and sinner, saved and damned, Jesus scatters sand all over my line until it disappears. Whoever is not against us is for us. Whoever doesn't oppose the beautiful and salvific works of God, mercy, love, kindness, justice, liberation, peacemaking, healing, nurturing, is on Christ's side. How mind-blowing is that? How challenging for us Christians who love our institutional, denominational, doctrinal, and sociocultural cliques so very, very much. When my husband and I went through a trying time in our marriage a few years ago, our therapist offered a piece of advice I've clung to ever since. What would it look like for each of you to help the other person succeed? 
Instead of calling out each other's faults, instead of focusing only on your own growth, comfort, rightness, instead of making an already hard road even harder for your partner to travel, what if you each committed to helping the other succeed? What if you cleared paths for each other, removed obstacles for each other, blessed each other towards success? My eyes still fill typing those words because they're so profoundly healing and hopeful. They also, I think, get to the heart of what Jesus is saying in this passage. Look at the stumbling blocks you place in front of yourselves and each other, he pleads with his disciples. Look at the perverse pleasure you take in excluding people who live, believe, worship, serve, and practice differently than you do. Look at how smug and superior you feel when your brothers and sisters fail. Look at how insecure and tenuous your own faith must be if its survival depends on you dismantling someone else's. Okay, you might be thinking, I get that. But why such harsh language? Why worms and fire and missing limbs? Well, because the stakes are so high. Because what we do really matters. If Jesus is telling us the truth in this passage, that it is entirely possible for Jesus' beloved little ones to stumble because of our carelessness, our apathy, our unkindness, our dogmatism, our prejudices, our unforgiveness, our laziness, and our fear. It is even possible for them to stumble as a result of our well-intentioned efforts to protect God, protect the Church, and protect the purity of our religion. In chastising the outsider exorcist, the disciples were trying to keep their borders safe and secure. They didn't want Jesus' ministry to be tainted by folks who didn't have insider knowledge, precise technique, and correct dogma. Knock it off, was Jesus' current response. I don't need or want that kind of protection. Look at the little ones. They are the ones who are vulnerable and need protecting. Look what you're doing to them. It would be better for you, Jesus says four ominous times in this passage, in case we're tempted to ignore him. Better for us if we what? If we mutilate our bodies to prove our fervor? Drown ourselves in the nearest body of water to keep other believers from losing their faith? No. Jesus doesn't mean any of this literally. Robert Brown Taylor notes dryly that this gospel passage, gruesome as it is, defines the limits of biblical literalism. After all, even churches that teach six-day creation, dinosaurs on Noah's Ark, and mandatory head coverings for women aren't usually filled with parishioners sporting eye patches and wrapped stumps. This passage, like so many other inconvenient ones in scripture, forces us, however reluctantly, to do the hard, messy work of interpretation. Jesus does, however, want us to think carefully about what it might cost us to become path clearers, stumbling block removers, people of God who actually help each other succeed. Because let's be honest, sometimes the process of removing a stumbling block from the path of faith can feel like surgery without anesthesia. Saying goodbye to a harmful relationship, surrendering a cherished point of view, breaking an addiction, forgiving an enemy, making a significant lifestyle change, turning away from self-loathing, welcoming the oddball other, all of these things can feel like deaths, like drownings, like losing our arms and legs. Jesus knows what he's talking about. It hurts to change. It hurts to cut off the precious, familiar things we cling to for dear life, even as those things slowly kill us. The bottle, the affair, the obsession with money, the decades-old shame, the resentment, the victimhood, the self-hatred, the rigidity. I believe we do ourselves and each other a great disservice if we read Jesus' stark words in this passage and hear condemnation. Jesus isn't condemning us. He's reminding us of truths we intuitively know. The way of the cross is hard. It's costly. It hurts. There is a place called hell that we create for ourselves and for each other. When we cling to our sins, our addictions, and our stumbling blocks, 
instead of following Jesus and allowing him in his mercy to remove them. But the will of God is not that we make the path of faith even rockier than it has to be. God is not invested in our self-loathing. As Richard Rohr puts it, it is quite helpful to see sin, like addiction, as a destructive disease instead of something for which we're culpable or punishable and that makes God unhappy. If sin indeed makes God unhappy, it is because God loves us, desires nothing more than our happiness, and wills the healing of the disease. What would it be like to cut away the disease and walk in wholeness? What would it be like if the children of God helped each other to succeed? Imagine the charismatic Christian removing stumbling blocks for the liturgical one, the liberal clearing paths for the conservative, the insider befriending the outsider. What would happen if we expanded the circle, lengthened the table, and decided to feast together? We'd be the company of the blessedly wounded, yes, with our missing limbs and our patched-over eyes. We wouldn't look as shiny and glossy as we did before. But we would be path-clearers. We'd be stumbling-block removers. Best of all, no little ones would ever get lost again on our account. For books this week, Dan reviews Women and Power by Mary Beard. Mary Beard is a professor of classics at Cambridge University, rebel rock star for her blog, A Dawn's Life, and a popular television personality in England. I earlier read and reviewed her magisterial and best-selling book, SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. This short book originated as two lectures that were given at the British Museum for the London Review of Books, and later featured on BBC Radio and Television. Beard acknowledges that women in the West have much to celebrate. In the 1970s, for example, only about 4% of the UK's MPs were women, whereas about 30% are today. In Rwanda, more than 60% of the legislators are women. But before we get too self-congratulatory, consider that the United Arab Consider that the Saudi Arabian National Council has a greater percentage of women than the Congress of the United States. Beard's manifesto explains just how deeply embedded in Western culture are the mechanisms that silence women, that refuse to take them seriously, and that sever them from the centers of power. Her first lecture considers speech-making in the broadest sense of the term, whether in a legislature, boardroom, committee meeting, or office party. Being the classicist that she is, Beard begins with Homer's Odyssey, and moves forward to show how women have been actively and even violently silenced for 3,000 years, or punished if they tried to speak out. Why is it that women are said to whine, whereas men are said to make a point? Public speech, says Beard, has been construed as a defining attribute of maleness. Our speaking has thus been gendered. The second lecture considers power, and began with the 1915 novella by the American feminist Charlotte Perkins Gilman called Herland, which is a fantasy about a nation of only women. As with speech, Beard argues that our mental cultural template for a powerful person remains resolutely male. Women are placed and seen as outside of power. There's an explicit exteriority here. Whereas a man might attain power, a woman is said to knock the door down, storm the citadel, or smash the glass ceiling. For men, power is an expected privilege. For women, it's a power grab. We need to resituate women on the inside of power, says Beard. Beard's dozens of examples include not just the classics of Greek and Roman antiquity, Shakespeare and Picasso, but all sorts of references to the popular culture of television, sports, religion, politics, Clinton, May, Merkel, Thatcher, and based upon her many personal experiences, even internet trolls. The book is better on diagnosis than remedy, but in my view, most any book by Mary Beard is an automatic read. The New York Times called Beard a Cambridge professor and television lecturer of irresistible, salty charm. For movies this week, Dan reviews Mercury 13. 
The space race began on October 4, 1957, when the Soviet Union launched Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite which orbited the Earth for three weeks. The United States began its own manned space program called Project Mercury in 1958. The head of NASA's space medicine was a flight surgeon named Randy Lovelace, who was interested in how women would do in the qualifying tests and exams that were given to the male astronauts. This Netflix original documentary honors the 13 women who passed Lovelace's privately funded program in 1960 that was not part of NASA. These women never flew in space or even met as a group. They were given the Phase I physical tests, but not Phases II and III. Some of the women later lobbied Congress on behalf of women astronauts. Claire Booth Luce published an article in Life magazine that criticized the men-only policies and included the names and photographs of Lovelace's Mercury 13 finalists, making them public for the first time. This is a story of prejudice and lost opportunities, but also progress. The first six women selected for NASA's astronaut program were in 1978. In 1983, Sally Ride became the first American woman in space, 25 years after the Soviets put Valentina Tereshkova in space in 1963. In 1995, Eileen Collins was the first woman to pilot the space shuttle, and at the launch, she invited and then gave a VIP recognition to the Mercury 13. Finally, for poetry this week, Before Thy Throne, O God, We Kneel, by William Boyd Carpenter. Before thy throne, O God, we kneel. Give us a conscience quick to feel, a ready mind to understand the meaning of thy chastening hand. Whate'er the pain and shame may be, bring us, O Father, nearer thee. Search out our hearts and make us true, help us to give to all their due. From love of pleasure, lust of gold, from sins which make the heart grow cold, wean us and train us with thy rod. Teach us to know our faults, O God. For sins of heedless word and deed, for pride ambitions to succeed, for crafty trade and subtle snare to catch the simple unaware, for lives bereft of purpose high, forgive, forgive, O Lord, we cry. Let the fierce fires which burn and try our inmost spirits purify. Consume the ill, purge out the shame, O God, be with us in the flame. A newborn people, may we rise, more pure, more true, more nobly wise. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for September 30th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.